I don't think he actually wrote it or did it or came up with it. But he's the one who's like famous for singing it, right? Mm, yeah. Isn't it an old song? Yeah, maybe. Maybe an opera. But he, uh, he's the one who could like sing on his back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or had to. He had to? Or no, that was Homer Simpson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he's a oh, mistake. <laughs> That's good. Uh, it's the final episode of season one of the Arbitration Station. Season finale, in which we tie up all loose ends and we will see all the characters' uh, story arcs will peak. And yes. Ants will sleep with stepbrothers and <laughs> <laughs> all in today's episode. No more cliffhangers. No. Uh, but it's New Year. It's the end of the New Year. Do you have any plans for your New Year's? You know me and that I don't have any plans. Right. Joel has a plan to take a bath. Yeah. <laughs> Read a few books. Three, two, one. <laughs> Bubbles. <laughs> but you do. You're going to California. I'll be in Los Angeles. A friend of mine just bought a house, so she's going to have a few people over. It'll be fun. That's actually, that sounds like a TV show. Yeah, because it's going to be like 15 degrees, 18 degrees Celsius at oh, night. Yeah. So we're at all, night, okay. Yeah. That's Swedish summertime. Yeah. So we'll all just be outside barbecuing and... Good for you. Yeah. I won't be outside until February. <laughs> you wish. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you're going to London, Cambridge. Yes, exactly. I'm looking forward to it. That's uh, that's basically my New Year's plans that I do the week after I'm moving. So I have to pack up and plan and do a few things. Yeah. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? No. No. Finish your dissertation. Jesus. Yeah. That's that. Now it just hit me with all the force. I have to finish it in 2018. <laughs> this is the last. <laughs> well, thanks. You found your, uh, you found your New Year's resolution. Right after this, I'm actually meeting my supervisor for the first time in a long while to talk about the substance of my research. I submitted a big chapter, and I he's already advertised that he has many, many, many notes for me, and I have to. I thought I was done. Seems I'm not, so I still have to go back and spend more time yeah. on something that I think I've already finished. So how does that work when you're working on this project? Is it you get you give sections and then you get sections back and then you're yeah, for me they, that's the way it works. And I think for most people, you have to like chunk it up in different parts because otherwise it's just too much and you can't just spend years and then send everything at once. Right. You have to get some sort of consistent feedback to ensure that you're on the path. And when you're done, you just put it in a box and never look at it again until you merge everything? Yeah, and then you find out that you missed out on so many things. You you have to rewrite it anyway. So I have so many moving parts, and I thought this was the only part that was not moving. Turns out it is moving. Oh, God. (laughs) Moving in the right direction. Yeah, okay, thanks for (laughs) being American. (laughs) (laughs) Jane Fonda. So Um, we're doing today... The arbitration year 2017 in review. Yes. Very, very, very summarily. <laughs> right. Just a, a clean gloss. Yeah, over the selective year. and subjective over what <laughs> happened in, in 2017. Then we are selflessly, no, not selflessly, what, uh, we are promoting ourselves in a, what's the opposite of selfless? Selfishly? Yeah. In vain? <laughs> that, yeah. No, I know the word you're trying to think of. <laughs> it's it's okay. like without shame. Yeah. Shamelessly. Yeah, let's, let's go with that. 
in any way, we're promoting ourselves and an article that we are. It's it's not published, but it will be published pretty soon. Yeah, I mean, maybe when this is published, this episode is published. No, Probably think, after yeah, the year. Very slow in the academic publication world, which is the rest of the topics of today relating to the academic publishing world. More or yeah. Less. So we're talking both about the substance of uh, the article that we've written together on the stay of enforcement while annulment or set-asides are pending. Exactly. And then we are, for happy fun time, talking about, on a meta level, like how 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 is it to write an article with someone else and should you be writing articles as an arbitration lawyer? Yeah. And then where do you go to shop these articles around and what would be good journals to, you know, forums for your article? Because I didn't know. You're the one who knows all this stuff. Yeah. That's a teaser. I probably rant about practitioners trying to be academics and <laughs> why it's not a good idea. Get out of my lane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that sounds like a good wrap-up then, because people will have time over the holidays. Might as well write a little article. That's, that's a little right. blog post. That's right. Or a doctoral dissertation. Right. <laughs> Slash Joel's doctoral <laughs> dissertation. <laughs> And then just send it to Joel at the arbitration station at gmail.com. Please send all dissertation contribution. Thanks in advance. And <laughs> let's uh, go. So I'm assuming that IA Reporter and Global Arbitration Review and maybe some others will do a serious 2017 review because sometimes they do that. Yeah, they, they usually do. They have people on staff who like think about this <laughs> for a while and then sit down and write, and then they read what they've written in draft form, and they end up with actually a product that is good. Right. Whereas we've been thinking about this for about 25 minutes. <laughs> Not even that, probably. A finger-in-the-air analysis. <laughs> exactly. And I'm, as you know, and as our listeners would know, I'm on leave from IA Reporter, supposedly to write my dissertation, uh, although I'm working on this podcast more than I'm working on my dissertation. So I, I I got an itch a little bit. I want to do this. I, right. I'm missing my IA reporter work. This is a way for me to... Itch that scratch. Exactly, and pretend that I'm at least somewhat of a uh, reporter still. So what happened in 2017? I was sort of counting on you to, to step in with commercial arbitration news, but I guess there's none. The SEC rules? True. That's that. The revision? That's actually a good thing. Let's start with like what, what's happening on the rules and, and 3D front because the SEC turned 100 years. Yeah. It was a big party. Yeah. You went. Yeah. You didn't. No. I was in Los Angeles. Always. Always. <laughs> always, always. Because that's the, the danger in doing this kind, kind of rundown of the year in December is that you only remember what happened in like October until December. <laughs> it's like the Oscars. That's why they only <laughs> have the movies released in October. And this was in January. So it was early 2017, and they had a big party with a, a movie release and everything, or arbitrating... A quiet Triumph. Yeah, quiet, that's the name of the movie, thanks. And on that occasion, they also published, or rather, the 2017 version of the SEC rules entered into force. And the same goes for the SEAC rules. Right. Those two are, seem they would seem to the casual listener that the SEAC rules and the SEC rules are the favorite rules of the arbitration station. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but th that's relevant because they, they are, of course, two commercial arbitration institutions. But in the 2017 version of the respective rules, they introduced specific rules for treaty-based cases as well. The SEC in an annex and SEAC did so in a separate set of rules for investment treaty cases. 
So that was in terms of like developments in commercial arbitration. It's big news that two commercial institutions made new rules for investment treaty cases. Definitely. And they entered into force on January 1st, 2017, I think. And also on that note, the the exit secretariat sent out a very comprehensive questionnaire because they are about to reform the exit rules. They're in the process. They're in the process. And I think uh, some of our listeners may have been involved in responding to this because many people in the arbitration community actually came with their input. And I think Exit just recently published, I just scrolled through, someone posted on LinkedIn that the Exit has published all the input from experts, not from states, oh, wow. obviously, but from arbitration people and just compiled it into one giant PDF of like arbitration experts giving their uh, opinions on how the that's, Exit rules should be done. That's a good Christmas gift. <laughs> yes, <laughs> actually. <laughs> That's good. And there are so many things that uh, are being discussed. It's tricky with ICSID because you can't really, in practice, change the convention. No. Because that would require so many states to agree. So the ICSID rules you have to change instead, and they are sort of restricted in what they can and cannot do. But right. that's going to happen sometime. Well, it forms the basis of our article, actually, because they're looking to talk about the stay of enforcement issue. Or security for costs, stay of enforcement, like there, it's all up for discussion. So that led, that was the premise of our article. So we'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's actually the way we framed it a little bit. That yeah. This is a one one part of the discussion, where at least we humbly think that we could contribute somehow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what else? What else in terms of rules and and, and institutions? Uh, CETA entered into force. If you're interested in investment treaties, yeah. or at least provisionally, and so did the Mauritius Convention, which is the Uncertral uh, Transparency Rules yeah, Convention, if you want to, for states who wish to get tr- transparency as part of their investment treaty arbitrations, automatically, in Uncertral cases, they can sign up, like opt into the transparency rules by way of the Mauritius Convention. And the sufficient number of states did so in 2017, so the convention entered into force. What does that entail? Like, I haven't read the convention yet, but... Well, basically, you say as a state that uh, in every investment treaty that your state is a party to, that refers to ancestral arbitration. Yeah. Every ancestral arbitration going forward would now automatically also involve the ancestral transparency rules. But what what does that mean? Like, all submissions are published or... Like yeah, what? so then, then the Unicentral Transparency Rules kick in. So it's, a, it's, it's a different discussion, but you get, you get the amicus expressly that the tribunal can order or oh. allow for amicus submissions, and, yeah, things are supposed to be published to a much larger extent. I think there are four or five key transparency provisions in the rules. Right. But obviously, if State X has ratified um, the Mauritius Convention and... The BIT in question is between state X and the state that has not ratified the Mauritius Convention. It does not apply. So both states to a BIT, has, they have to be Mauritius Convention states. So we still have this asymmetry. Right. But it's a big deal that the convention is up and running, finally. I don't think we have any new exit states, but we have one new New York Convention state, and that is... <laughs> This has been quiz. Yeah, exactly. By arbitration station. <laughs> no it's idea. Angola. Oh, of course. <laughs> I love Angola. You didn't know this. And uh, South Africa enacted a new arbitration law based on the Uncertral Model Law. 
we have a few of these like things that happen every year that a few states move in uh, the arbitration friendly direction. <laughs> I was reading an article on the way here to kind of like be able to contribute to the segment, and it was like India becomes more like arbitration friendly, and I was like, yeah, that's oh, the way the news are always framed. It's gonna hate this. Yeah, this let's do a full episode on <laughs> what's wrong with the phrase arbitration friendly. But um, moving forward. This is. I, I want to make sure this does not become sort of a piecemeal, just mentioning things. But uh, it's hard to avoid when you're doing a rundown of the of the year. What do we have in terms of awards? Yeah. From 2017, no super major like Yukos uh, style awards no. that, that are major, 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 right? No. You when was Sharon v Spain? When did, did that come out? 2016. Yeah. Oh, damn. Nothing to contribute in my <laughs> <laughs> But on that, because that's an interesting case, because Spain won, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first of many, many similar ECT-based cases against Spain, and Spain won that case. This year, the Czech Republic actually won its first of, I don't know, seven or eight similar cases pending against the Czech Republic. So mm-hmm. if 2016 was the year when the Spain cases started to come in, 2017 yeah. was the year when the Czech Republic cases started to come in. Right. So kind of relevant. Yeah, still. thanks, Stoll. <laughs> Appreciate the support. Yeah. And we also saw a wave of jurisdictional decisions in all these Crimea-related cases. There are... A handful yeah. of them. I think most of them are PCA, answer trial based. But it's uh, tricky cases in terms of public international law because uh, it's not, you know, it, it's sensitive who controls Crimea. Yeah. And uh, consequently, which investment treaties apply and do not apply in the territory of Crimea. And there were many or several, at least, that I know on the top of my head that moved on beyond the jurisdictional stage. So they cleared the hurdle of moving on to the merits in several of these cases based on the BIT between Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So we will see merit rulings and all the Crimea cases pretty soon, hopefully. There were two awards that I know of, possibly more, but that were annulled. One partially uh, at exit and one uh, completely in the Paris Court of Appeal. Yes. So two investment treaty awards have been set aside or annulled that I know of in 2017. It might be more. And I, a reporter, will have to correct me when they come up with their serious and comprehensive <laughs> summary. But there was one exit case against Venezuela, which was uh, partially annulled early in 2017. I think it was a Dutch subsidiary of ExxonMobil, yeah. a Venezuela holding. Three crowns worked on that. That's right. That's right. And a few other law firms, because it was that, as yeah. is the tendency with the Venezuelan cases, uh, they involve a lot of money. Yeah. And interestingly, I think, if I recall correctly, it was not jurisdiction or even liability that was an issue but rather the damages calculation. Exactly. They were supposed to they want they basically limited the damages. That was like part that was how the annulment happened. They just like took away some of the damages. Yeah, you guys committed an error in calculating damages. So that part is now removed and in the end the award still stands but they got a lot less money. Exactly. There was some provision in the contract that they that the tribunal didn't look to and in that provision it said that your damages should be limited to a certain amount. And then they said, okay, you should have considered that. And then that's mm-hmm. why they know. And then we had a case against Kyrgyzstan that was set aside in the Paris Court of Appeal, which is interesting to us because the, the tribunal was chaired by Jan Paulson and the co-arbitrators were Kai Hobir, to mm-hmm. whom we both have connections, mm-hmm. and a Danish arbitrator called Niels Schirsing, who is in Hong Kong, I think. 
And in the arbitration, the state had alleged that the investor was involved in money laundering, and so that the investment was not legal, basically. Right. And the tribunal seemed to be sympathetic to this, but found that the state had not sufficiently demonstrated, or they couldn't come up with enough evidence to show that this was indeed the case. Right. But in the Paris Court of Appeal, that was different, and the the court was uh, convinced basically that the investor had been involved in money laundering, so that would violate public policy. Mm-hmm. So one of those very, very rare exceptions where a public policy right. challenge actually worked. So that was in February, I think. Outside of Russia? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Parenthesis. <laughs> a few uh, gossipy items. Wait, what about Kazakhstan? That was also in 2016. But then, what do you want to talk about the NACA court decision? We had a very arbitration station moment on Saturday at my party. I had a party to celebrate my citizenship. And we had people that were there that were lawyers and non-lawyers, but the lawyers, like, obviously congregated. And then we started chatting about there was a freeze of assets against Kazakhstan. Yeah, the thing is, I, I can't, I, I can't uh, or rather I won't really talk about it because I'm, I'm so interested in this. And I have not you been able to get right. the documentation. Yeah, exactly. And right. I also want to... I'm I'm fighting as we speak in Swedish court to get access to things because there's an, an enforcement case against Kazakhstan in Sweden, in in several parts of Sweden it seems, or at least in several uh, different instances in, in Swedish administration of justice. So I want to know more before we get yeah. to this. It's not that's that that common. I think that sovereign states have assets that are within Swedish court jurisdictions. Exactly. So it's interesting, and I would like to know more more than I uh, got to know from your cocktail party. All right, continue. <laughs> so I was hoping we could get some gossip news, but there hasn't been that many big moves, and we're not going to be that kind of podcast. Like a partner from oh, Fresh yeah. re- was recruited by the Hong Kong office of... <laughs> they must leak that stuff to the papers, because <laughs> who cares? Well, people care. I mean, really? it's, yeah, this is when like, partners leave. Okay, but there was something like senior associate moved. I was like, okay. I think this is a guilty pleasure, though. I think this is something that we all really we we claim that we don't really care, and then still, nevertheless, we keep talking about it. And like, oh, did you see that she was recruited by? Mo? Yeah. So there's an interest, obviously. That's a. I mean, it's a. It's a free market economy. They wouldn't print this stuff all the time if people didn't read That's it. That's true. Pay for it. But it's just so funny because they interview people from the old firm, being like, how does it feel? Now that yeah. this person has left. Yeah, and um, Miss X is a stellar lawyer <laughs> yeah. with whom I've worked for many years, and we're Cookie sad to see response. her go. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. But uh, on that note, and a little less gossipy, ICSID, or rather the ICSID chairman, actually made, de- made designations to the ICSID uh, panels or the roster, which doesn't happen that often. I think they have a six-year mandate. So the way it works mm-hmm. at ICSID is, to, of, of course, the parties do most of the arbitrator appointments. So most of the ICSID appointments are made by the parties. But then ICSID, which we may or may not have talked about before on the podcast, ICSID also does a lot of designations or appointments in cases, typically the chair, or on behalf of the respondent if the respondent does not participate, or of course in the annulment cases, all the members of the annulment committee, they are appointed by ICSID. And ICSID cannot just appoint freely any person they would want to appoint. There's a list. There's a list that they have to stick to, and that list is maintained by the states. So I know that we have a few listeners who work for governments, 
uh, who are uh, loyal listeners who are in touch on a regular basis. And I just want to say, for the record, if you're working for a government, make sure that your uh, nominations to the exit list are up to date. Some states even have people who like passed away in the 1980s who are still officially on the arbitrator list. And that makes it hard for exit because they, they are stuck with the list when they are making appointments. So they figured out a minor vent or like a little loophole in which exit themselves actually also get to a point. I think it's 10 arbitrators and 10 conciliators in addition to the names put forward by the states. Uh So they basically use, they take 10 names that should be on the list but are not on the list. (laughs) It's like the Walt Disney copyright exception. It's like, (laughs) we really need this. Change the law. Yeah, exactly. So that happened this fall. So 10 people uh, were nominated to the exit uh, roster for I think six years, maybe seven years, maybe five years, but something like that. So they're going to be on there for a while, which, of course, was a big deal because that's yeah. like ten, 10 names who now can expect regular exit appointments for, an, for a number of years. And that was an ICJ election. This is more public international. I don't know if you follow this because you're not as interested in no. state-to-state cases, but the ICJ also have rotating mandates and they elect judges on a regular basis. This year, for the first time ever in the history of ICJ, England lost, or they, for the first time, they do not anymore have a judge on the ICJ. And instead, an Indian uh, candidate mm-hmm. was nominated. And this is, this is a big deal in the public international law community, you know, the changing of the powers, like the, the permanent members of the Security Council do not automatically get an ICJ judge anymore. And now, you know, India, of course, it's a symbolic thing that India, having been a a part of the UK Commonwealth Empire, is now, like, moving ahead. Right. So the guy, uh, Judge Christopher Greenwood, who was not appointed, is now, he was not reappointed as an ICJ judge. So he is now, once again, back to only being an arbitrator full-time in big cases. Shame. (laughs) Yeah, poor guy. Poor guy. (laughs) And finally, one good thing, simply because I cannot stay away from praising IA Reporter now that I have the microphone and you are not interrupting me. <laughs> uh, IA Reporter uncovered dozen or more than a dozen cases against Libya uh, over the course of the year, which basically instantly changed the count of known cases against Libya from like a few to many, many, many. Oh, wow. And they are all... The facts are similar, but they are all like stemming from the Arab Spring, basically, which is an interesting development that we're starting to see Arab Spring-related investment treaty cases. And also goes to show the the general point that these cases were not known a year ago, and now we know that Libya is involved. I think it's like 15 or 16 cases. So there are supposedly a lot of cases out there that we don't know about. It just takes a very serious digging effort to find out about them, but... You should keep that in mind when we're talking about investment treaty cases, that many are actually unknown still. Yeah, that's a, that's true. Because we have some statistics in our article, and it's just like... Yeah, that's always... That, so that's more. with the caveat that it's based on the known cases. Right. And the, the unknown cases, of, of course, are unknown. So yeah. you don't really know how big a part of the bigger caseload are unknown. That's it for me, folks. Do you have anything to add? What happened in 2017 in Brian Kotick's life or <laughs> professional life? Yeah. Uh, my country went down the drain. <laughs> what else? <laughs> um, no, you, I th- think you got a real good uh, taste of it. I think when you're like practicing, you just become obsessed with 
the things that you're working on that you don't really like see the forest for the trees. That's true. But then Gar has this thing. It's once a year, like the Gar Live Awards or something, where you get the most prepared arbitrator and best right. award, best lecture. And right. That is, of course, the, the ambitious version of what I just did. So maybe we'll get back to when do when they do that, which is essentially the Oscars of yeah. or the arbitration world. Or that's the way they would want to frame it, I guess. <laughs> it's really random. That they do that, but it's nice. But to be the most prepared arbitrator, it's like, who's voting on that? How many people have seen this arbitrator be prepared? I guess they're sitting on, like, a hundred cases. (laughs) 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 Or any number of cases. Yeah. And I guess it's a lot of reputational stuff as well. But we will get back to that when that happens. I mean, I haven't been to one of those, so I shouldn't say too much. But I think it's an interesting setup. And I'm also, as a sort of semi-insider, semi-outsider in this field, I'm always a little bit provoked when we have this back-scratching exercises. Of <laughs> yeah, exactly. Most beautiful arbitrator. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think I retweeted on the Arbitration Station account that there was a, a, a guy who wrote on Twitter, like, judging from the LinkedIn feed, Every day there's an award for law firms, and every law firm wins every award every time. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> we have so many awards here. I'm like, <laughs> how did everyone win this? Well, speaking of back scratching, let's talk about our article. <laughs> so, full disclosure. Um, I was working on a annulment case, and we had a stay of enforcement, and then there was an application for a continued stay of enforcement. I had no idea what that was. I ended up like digging my teeth into it, along with the rest of my team. And then we kind of had this like very methodological review of stay of enforcement cases because it was a lot of different shifting trends. And when I was done with this annulment case, I was like, this is a perfect like premise to write an article when you have a shift in jurisprudence or a shift that to me is like the the key thing to do when you're trying to find an article subject and then you came to me because you you had done the job and <laughs> yeah. i don't know you needed me to email the publisher yeah exactly i was like do you know this you'll get a byline <laughs> Uh, well, and then we wanted to make a little bit more robust with having just not just ICSA cases, but also non-ICSA cases. Um, but we and that's what you do in the U.S. as well when there's like a circuit court split and it's about to go up to the Supreme Court. That's the perfect article to write because by the very nature, there's like something that needs to be analyzed and a position needs to be taken or resolved. Um, so it's a good way to start. And this is the question on whether or not you can get a stay of enforcement while the annulment is pending isn't really regulated. That's the thing, right? It's, exactly. It's, been, it's a, the discretion of the annulment committees or the domestic courts in questions, really. Yeah. And so what we found is that there was about three trends that were happening as the cases started to come in about whether there should be a presumed stay of enforcement barring any exceptional circumstances or whether it's reverse that you should not get a stay of enforcement unless there's circumstances to warrant a stay of enforcement. And we should just say maybe for the record that this is a big thing. I think to students yeah. or academics this is like who cares cuz it's what what, what you know, it's a practical detail right. really. But I mean if, if given the amount typically in dispute what happens to the award while it's being challenged it's crucial 
practically speaking, for right. the people involved. And it also is crucial to the, you know, the exit system and the investment context in general that if you get an award, and this is what we talk about in the article, annulment has become a, almost a delay tactic. It's almost default people go to annul. And if you can't get your money during annulment, then you're basically just saying, okay, when you advise your client, we're going to go through this case, it's going to take three to five years. And then guess what? We're likely to get an annulment. You're not going to be able to get your money. And then, and then you're going to da 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 15 years later, you've resigned from the company or the company shut down. Um, but and as we said in the first segment, the reason why we how we framed this issue is that there was a background paper in the preparation process for the amendments to the ICSID rules, and they had a provision that says similar to security for costs, parties might be assisted by an express rule addressing when an ad hoc committee could order security on a stay of enforcement of awards. Now, what that means is that what we saw in the latest trend is that basically a continued stay of enforcement was becoming quote, automatic. I use that word hesitantly, but we'll talk about that in a second. And what they did to kind of counteract, or as we say in the title, counterbalance that uh, prejudice to the investor is that they would give them a security for costs or some sort of guarantee. And that guarantee came up in different ways, which we'll talk about. So that's kind of like the frame with which we discuss this. Um, but basically what, uh, you know, another impact that I was just saying is that the, you have in the exit convention this finality of an arbitration award. So when you have a presumed stay of enforcement, then you get an award, but it's not necessarily enforceable. And so you're kind of going counter to the express language of the exit convention. So there was this kind of push to have like jurisprudence constant to have like, you know, how are tribunals going to address this issue when it comes up? So we looked at three trends. The first trend was the initial trend, and that came from Amcovi Indonesia, Wiener Hotels v. Egypt. Wiener? Wiener? Yeah. You would say Wiener, huh? Yeah, it's Danish, I think. Wiener. Wiener. Wiener? Um, so they said that the stay of enforcement is an exceptional measure that interferes with an investor's rights to an immediately payable and enforceable award. So that's where you know, we have, okay, the language of the ICSA convention is what we should really look to. Then there was a pre, what we call the pre-2010 trend, which included a Zurich's and Enron v. Argentina. And they said that ad hoc committees considering that sh a stay should only be lifted, so you have your initial stay, and then so it should only be lifted under exceptional circumstances. So if you frame it that way, then you say that there is a presumption in favor of a stay of enforcement that should only be lifted um, on the showing of exceptional circumstances. So the burden of proof shifts back to the applicant of the annulment that is requesting or, you know, objecting to the stay of enforcement um, to prove that there would be, you know, some exceptional prejudice as a result of a continued stay of enforcement. Yeah, and I'm, continued is crucial here because in the exit system, it is automatically stayed initially exactly. right, on like a prima facie basis by exit. Yes. And then once an annulment committee is, is put in place, they have to make more of a, a fuller determination of whether or not that should still be the case. And that's different in some domestic courts, as we might get back to probably. Yeah, definitely. And then we have in May 2010, the Victor P. Casado ruling um, that said that the granting of a stay of enforcement pending the outcome of annulment proceedings has now become almost automatic. And that's why I flagged the word automatic, because now we're talking about, not it's not only a presumption, we're talking about 
you get into the exit process, you're going to get a stay of enforcement initially and a continued stay of enforcement pending annulment, um, which was pretty cr a crazy position to take. Um, and then we have the post-2009 trend, and if you're following very closely, there was a pre-2010 and post-2009, but that's because there were some cases that were pending at the same time and came out uh, differently. So the post-2009 trend uh, basically said, and this is coming from Joel's favorite case, Cardasopolis v. Georgia, uh, where they bucked the earlier trend and said that the stay of enforcement during annulment proceedings is by no way automatic. Quite the contrary, a stay is contingent upon the existence of relevant circumstances which must be proven by the applicant for the stay of enforcement. Um, and that was, it was not until 2013 that SGSV Paraguay adopted the position that there was a presumption against a stay of enforcement. Um, is this confusing yet? Because that's someone, you know, and that's the point, right? And that's why we're kind of getting into this subject. Is this good? Because this is, Ancetral uh, members, members of the working group should listen up because typically one of the problems or supposed problems with investment treaty arbitration is these inconsistent decisions on similar things and you have all these famous you know MFN rulings that go on umbrella clauses rulings or the necessity defense things where tribunals have gone in different ways that are like the big things but this type of like detailed procedural things is it's part of the same problem really it's just right. a little bit more nuanced so it, it doesn't get the same headlines exactly but still I mean obviously we have what like a at least a two-digit number of annulment committees yeah coming to relatively uh, different yeah, yeah, yeah on the exact same thing not that a similar bit but the exact same thing in the exit convention yeah and that little nuance causes like a burden of proof to shift like i mean it has a lot of implications do you have uh, before we get into the provision of security do you have any words on the in the non-exit context that's my minor role in in the whole <laughs> article writing it and is always to think the point that I'm always trying to make, that yeah. non-exit is different from exit. Yeah. And this is just yet another demonstration of that because when you are challenging the award, not within the exit system, but outside of the exit system, you, you're doing it typically before the court at the place of arbitration and the domestic arbitration law governs this, is this issue. And there haven't really been a lot of cases on the state of enforcement in the treaty-based context. And the reason for that, presumably, is that uh, if you manage to get such an order from the court saying that the enforcement is hereby stalled or stayed during the challenge proceedings, that order does not translate very well into the rest of the world. What an exit annulment committee says goes for like, globally. Right. So if, if they order a state enforcement, you cannot enforce. If a court in London does the same, that seemingly or at least on the, the surface that only applies in London or in, in the own England, like in the jurisdiction that the court is in. Right. So you could still go and enforce somewhere else in theory. So it's not a, as attractive to try to get a state of enforcement uh, as it would be in the exit context. Right. So you don't have that many. So you have to look into general like commercial arbitration case law when you're doing it. But the basic point here is that it's it's different. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you're going to get that situation where you have an enforced award where it's been stayed or set aside somewhere else. And then you have that like catch 22. Yeah. Um, so what did these tribunals do when they've, you know, came up with this 
when they were faced with this problem is that a lot of tribunals just said, okay, well, the guys before, everybody, everybody's continuing stays of enforcement. Don't let me be the guy who sticks his neck out. But what we're going to do is be more proactive in how to establish fairness and equality with the parties. Um, so what they did is that pr tribunals have started to grant a provision of security. Um, and so what they've done is they condition their stay of enforcement on the provision of a guarantee or security by the applicant for annulment or set aside. And it's gained pretty good support. Um, out of the 43 requests for the stay of enforcement as of the time we wrote our article, 36 granted those requests and 22 conditioned the stay of enforcement on some type of security or written undertaking. Um, so that's the funny thing is that it's not only that they have to post money. Um, what they have, what some tribunals have done is that they- Annulment committees. Annul sorry, annulment committees, thank you. This whole thing is annulment committees, not tribunals. Um, is that they've asked people to write a written undertaking to say, I hereby declare that I will pay the award when this annulment is over. Um, the legal value of which being <laughs> doubtful. A potato. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, it's not uh, very but good. But this is actually an interesting thing that we may pick up on in a, on, in a, in a later segment. That, uh, this seems to me to be sort of a general approach to many problems in international arbitration. Okay, maybe it seems the other party did something wrong. And rather than ordering them, we ask them to like just write or yeah. testify or just you know, assure us all, the tribunal and the other party, that we are going to do what we are asked to do or we are going to just comply with whatever. Not in a, like a, a hard law order or, or you know, an actual subpoena undertaking right. with any kind of value, but just right. on your, I swear on my Bible or on my, my kids or like my <laughs> legal ethics that we are going to do what's asked of us. No worries, yeah. guys. And that's also happened in like a provision in a provisional measures context where they just say, "Well, you should stop this, so just say you're going to stop." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I mean, I've seen it in many cases where you have like they do not really comply with the procedural order, and then the other party is like asking the tribunal to order them to comply with the procedural right. order, and the, instead the sort of splitting the baby solution is to add to the ask the non-complying party to just promise that they will comply. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. As, as counsel feeling that on the other side, you don't really feel that the tribunal's kind of doing their job in that sense. Um, but the, so basically what, I mean, just to kind of round this out, is that you have people, or you have people, you have ad hoc committees that were a bit reluctant to grant provision or security on the stay because they didn't know where to derive their power. They didn't know whether they had the power as an ad hoc committee to tell a party to post millions of dollars um, if they didn't have a express provision to do so, like a security for cost submission uh, position. Um, so you have a, where is it? Here. Um, so the creative solution that some ad hoc committees derive have derived their confidence for the general authority to do so is under the provisional measures uh, rule 39 of the exit arbitration rules and then article 47 of the exit convention uh, where it says that a party may request the provisional measures for the preservation of its rights to be recommended by the tribunal even if a party does not expressly request such relief the tribunal may recommend provisional measures on its own initiative um, and then you have uh, by virtue of rule 53 that they apply mutis mutandis to annulment 
So they found that, but other people have found it their power. Other ad hoc committees, let me talk more precisely. <laughs> other ad hoc committees have said that they derive their power to order security for states of enforcement from their inherent empower to protect the rights of the parties and the integrity of the proceedings. And that you can see in Kiparax and Enron, um, where the exclusion of express rule did not necessarily mean that they lacked the competence uh, to award security. Yeah, Q exit reform work like should this be made an express rule exactly or are we fine with it being maybe part of an inherent power which is similar to what we talked to patricia shaughnessy about uh, with the the sec rules and this uh, summary procedure exactly that we have a lot of things that are not expressly in the arbitration rules but may or may not be found to be within a general power and should we start to specify all these different things that may be part of the general power. Right. And if we do so, does that mean by implication that the things that are not specified are, are not, not within, within the, the power? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is a similar thing. Like This is one of those things that, that some think are within the tribunal's power to do and some think it's not. Yeah. And the question is, should we specify that it is or should we leave it as is? Yes, definitely. And I, the problem is, is that if you're looking to this like jurisprudence constant theory or goal to then say, okay, let's leave it into the inherent powers and then allow discretion on how everyone's going to deal with this. And then there's prejudices coming up on both sides and watch arbitrators get create or ad hoc committee members get creative in how they put out these flames. Well, if the goal is to have constant jurisprudence, especially on this issue, since it comes up in almost every annulment case, or, you know, we found like 75%, that there maybe should be something expressed that the tribunal could say, okay, or the ad hoc committee members can say, okay, we will refer to this rule that we have the express power to do so. We also, maybe they'll put this in there, that they also have the uh, ability to grant provisional uh, a provision of security on that. Um, and so we didn't, I mean, we came to a conclusion, but I'm, we'll, that'll be the cliffhanger to go by the exit reveal. <laughs> It'll also be a good... Uh, segue into the happy fun time topic and the strategy well, in terms of writing articles as an arbitration lawyer. Let's do it. Happy fun time. Happy fun time. For the final last time of 2017. It took us 18 episodes and we still didn't find a real name for this segment. Oh, au contraire, my friend. <laughs> well, like episode two, we came up with the name Happy Fun Time. And then we just stuck with it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, should you write articles? We've already given away the answer because we... <laughs> Wrote one. Yeah, exactly. And we wanted to promote it. And then we came up with Happy Fun Time to justify promoting <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> It's a good idea, generally speaking, to write articles. And I say when I'm teaching that the golden rule, as a law student while studying law, you are not allowed to write an essay or a dissertation or a thesis or anything that you cannot also make into your first article. That should be the goal for every law student. So I think that's uncontroversial. But for people who are a little bit more uh, advanced in their career, it's a different discussion because then you have other things typically going on in your life, working on a doctor dissertation or trying to collect on an award against a rogue uh, state or whatever you're doing. Right. And I think this is this issue of like writing in academic context while working is uh, alive in most legal fields, but it's even more so in ours 
Uh, and this issue is also live in our relationship, something that we haven't discussed. Now you're looking up. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, you were checking out there for 10 seconds, yeah. and now I saw you were really... <laughs> because this is something we have not addressed, at least not expressly, on the podcast. Is there a certain uh, level of disdain in the academic community Mm. for the tendency of practitioners to write articles. Mm. Yes, is the answer. But also, on the other hand, is there a certain amount of disdain in the practical community towards the scholars and their, like, you know, abstracts? uh, Opening up Pandora's box when it didn't need to be opened. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That is also the case. And Exhibit A, your is a table, a table comment when I try right. to talk about Anthea Roberts' book. It's international, really international. Yeah. Like, ah, <laughs> oh, now <laughs> a scholar is writing a book. Oh, blah, 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 blah. So we have this conflict here between academics and practitioners. Conflict might be too strong a word, but there's a, a, a different kind of community. Yeah. Two different kinds of communities. And the interesting thing, of course, with our field is that a lot of people move in between. So it's not a clear cut distinction really right but i i have the opposite reaction often uh, compared to yours oh fuck it's it's a table a table now again i don't want to read any (laughs) philosophy i want to solve the problem yeah i have the opposite uh, reaction because i uh, often find like a book chapter or an article that just judging from the title is on spot something that i'm interested in and then i read it and it's nothing it's it's an arbitrator or a law firm partner who's written it and uh-huh. it's, it's probably not even them. It's, it's someone more junior in their right. firm or in their employment. And it's just a summary of a few cases that I already know about and then something incredibly generic about, let's see what future jurisprudence <laughs> will say. <laughs> Wait, that's kind, that's kind of like our article. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I, it's so true. But this is the thing because you're working with it and your research become because t- you're talking about basically someone who, just like you said, they are writing a thesis, they're doing the research, and then you should turn that into an article. When you're a practitioner, your work and research is looking at these cases, and then you're like... Oh. I know, and they, I mean, that's great. It's a it's a blessing, yeah. but, but also a curse yeah. that, that many practitioners in our field also engage in this. Be, be, we, I mean, we rely on that as scholars as well, that people are digging things up or they are faced with a problem that they think that others might be interested in, and that's sort of how the discourse is being driven forward. That's really thanks to to you guys out it's there. symbiosis. It is. But it's also typically the problem from my horizon then as, a, as an academic is that it's limited analysis, limited arguments, and absolutely you know, no position whatsoever on the interesting things because right. there's no, you know, is this good, is this bad? Or at least there's a little bit to the extent that it's acceptable to your client. And you also have your own career to think about as a, as a counsel <laughs> or prospective arbitrator. You don't want to put your foot down on th- something that may come back and bite yeah. you in the ass further down the line in your career. That's what it is, though. I mean, we're, you're so concerned in taking a position or saying that this is going to affect public policy or we should not do this at all. I mean, look at Jan Pawson's article about, you know, having taking away the ability to have party-appointed arbitrators and people pulled their hair out over the issue just because he took a position. Yeah, but that he is in a special sphere together with a few other people who are already beyond the point where they have to give... Uh, fuck <laughs> about the career. I love how you censored yourself on shit, but then like <laughs> reinserted a worse one. <laughs> yeah, we have now actually started. I don't know if, if you noticed when I'm publishing now, I put an explicit uh, E 
in the podcast. I like it. It yeah. gives us a little edge. That's true. And it also prevents us from getting sponsors. But that's it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Jon Paulson and a few other, I think um, uh, Justice Schwebel is in that group as well of people who are so senior that they can uh, move beyond this typical, like, I'm, I'm a law firm partner, right. I'm an arbitrator, I shouldn't uh, have strong positions on controversial issues. But most people are not in that uh, category right. of people. And as an academic, I frankly just think it's boring and not always useful because I want people to take positions yeah. and argue their points. And I, I, mean, I see why it's just a little bit disappointing. <laughs> Well, you're, it's like not connecting the last synapse to be, okay, well, these cases say this, these cases say this, but then what does this mean? Where are they getting it from? What could they do instead? Because you can't say what they could do instead without knowing a lot about the rules and where they come from and the history, and all, and that's where you guys come in. Yeah, ideally speaking. But then th- this was just a minor rant. The big issue for Happy Fun Time topic really is right. is the more practical. <laughs> how do you write an yeah. actual article? And I think we did a good job in the sense that you did a good job and I helped you publish it. It's it's good to have to co-write, stuff, yeah. Yeah. especially if you're one academic and one practitioner. It makes for a good uh, synergy both in terms of your uh, substantive insights and in terms of your everyday, like what you're doing, and uh, one one finds something out or works on something that is relevant, and the other actually has, as as a living, is trying to publish things and, and yeah. do more serious academic writing. That's true. Have you co-written other things? Is this your first published uh, article? Yes, yeah. but I mean, I did like Kluver. Yeah, um, and I co-wrote that with Claire. Uh, Morel de Westgraver, who works at Brian Cave in London. Hmm. Then we'll have Kluver Arbitration Blog, yeah. which is a good like stepping stone. Yes. Because it's it's a way to get your name out there and to show that you're interested in things and to contribute to the discussion without necessarily having to go through the like 18 months process. Peer reviewing. Yeah. But how did, I mean, Claire had a connection with Kluver, so I just helped her write it and then she pursued the publication path. But is it just knowing someone who's on the editing committee of Kluver and then sending them submissions? We should really ask them themselves. My impression is that you can just email it and if it's not crappy, yeah. they will publish it when they have time and when it fits into their like publishing schedule. Right. That's my impression. That okay. might be just giving them too, too little credit for what they're doing, but that's the way it seems to me. But just a practical matter, you go on their website, you find the people that are on the right-hand column and then you email them. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And you, you have to pitch it, I guess. I have written a few of those as well. And yeah. you have to like make a case, of course, that this is relevant and it's not uh, self-promoting. Right. It's rather a substantive thing that is of general interest. And then you have a bunch of journals. And I think, I mean, we're joking about this and my minor contribution to our article, but it's, I guess, judging from how lost you are, <laughs> it is a practical problem that you don't really know which are the journals, how does it work, and who should you approach in what way. Yes, I've, I had no idea. I still don't really have an idea. But it's just, it's Googling. <laughs> but it, you just send it to an editor. Yeah, many of these have open, they even have like software where you, you, you sign up, you get a login, then you do everything online, and then it ends up at the right person's desk. Okay. I guess. Right. And what journals are you, do you typically think to submit to? Well, this is a little bit different. And here again, we see this divide between practitioners and academics, mm-hmm. I think, a little bit. Because for academics, of course, r- real academics, more real academics than I am, 
it, this is uh, what you live and die with, the level of the uh, publications you're working with, because they are ranked in a very formalistic way. So you have good journals and bad journals, and right. it's not really the same in arbitration, but you, it's, it's super, super, super important in which journals you publish. I think for practitioners, it doesn't matter really. You know, the ranking of the publication in question isn't as relevant as... I think there's like bands... Yeah, of, you know, band one, band two. Exactly. And the way you judge the bands is not by the academic ranking, but rather the reach or like the brand in the community. Yeah. Or whether it could be cited to in another yeah. case. So in, in investment treaty arbitration where I'm in, we, we have these like big public international law journals that are uh, highly ranked, but they are not really relevant to most arbitration practitioners at least. So instead, we have the ICSID review, Foreign Investment Law, mm-hmm. whatever it's called, that we published our article in. We have Arbitration International and Journal of International Arbitration. Very similar names. <laughs> Confusing. There's only so many ways. You, there's like, what, nine permutations of that? Yeah, and I think those are like the, the biggest ones where we see most of the discussion. I think those are the ones that like people at law firms read and yes. have physical copies of. Yeah, you need to have, and then there are that might be like band one, if we're a bit careless in our <laughs> categorization, <laughs> and probably forgetting one or two, and then you have many, many, many more like specialized, of course, like you have the, all these like in in different jurisdictions that still have an international outlook, so yes. you have like regional reviews of international arbitration and that kind of thing. We did have one in Stockholm that unfortunately is not running anymore, and I know there are many others in different jurisdictions that are not necessarily just domestic in their approach. So you should be able to get something published. That's not the problem. The problem is really what is the quality or the focus of what you're writing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Do you think it's a, uh, I mean, obviously it is, but to what extent do you think it's a career thing, enhancement as a practicing lawyer to also have a record of... Oh, I think it is. I think it's especially in like a mid-level associate or senior associate about to be a partner. It's just a way to distinguish yourself to say that you... I mean, we work a lot. And then to say on top of the work I just did, I also did something on the side. Um, It just shows that when you have something that happens in a case that you actually can get into it in an academic sort of analysis instead of just kind of arguing the specific facts of your case and not taking a real interest in the law. Uh, So it's a kind of a way, and it's a talking point in interviews. It could be something, you know, something in that sense where people can um, relate to you and in an individualized form instead of saying. That's right. It goes to the general points that we've been talking about a few times before that you want to be part of a community. You're beyond just what you're doing on an everyday basis. You're interested. You're engaged. Exactly. And this is just one, or maybe a relatively big part of that uh, branding exercise, essentially. Definitely. And when you're going through like due diligence of arbitrators, when you're looking at co- you know your opposing counsel and sizing them up, you you'll look to their list of publications and then compare it to their age and do a little division math and see how accomplished they are. <laughs> because people, A, inflate all the cases they work on, B, all the cases are confidential. So you don't really know how much these people can do or how they write even. Um, so it's it's a way, a sample. Speaking of that and speaking of age, we're basically the same age. You're a little bit older than I am. <laughs> for the record. But, but we are more or less the same generation. Yes. And we, we, we've written an article together. What about writing with more senior 
members of the arbitration community. If you can get your name on it, uh, definitely. But there's so many instances. Because yeah, that's the <laughs> elephant in the room, yeah. really. Because you were saying like you want to see if they can even write, but you cannot really be certain that it is, that's in true. fact, the stated author who wrote the thing. That's the problem in co-authoring in general, because someone asked me for, if someone were to ask me for a written sample and I would say, look at this, they would be, well, we can't distinguish between Joel and you. Um, but I, th I mean, I think it's great to work with a senior person because that's how you're always drafting is, you know, you're working collaboratively with a senior or person more senior than you. But the problem then becomes is that you're just going to be put under the shadow of the, of the senior author. It's a good way to start and it's a good way to get your feet wet. But if you're really trying to use it as a promotional device, then you should start doing things on your own. Yeah, I think it might be changing a little bit that the the junior de facto co-author is yes. slowly being moved from the first footnote and like thanks for research assistant <laughs> and into co-authorship yes. just by virtue of time and progress and arbitrators and professors being a little bit more right open to <laughs> see i've seen this and this is actually i mean my own prejudgment of things but if i see a junior lawyer has written like 10 articles and then i see that it's co-authored with another partner it's like okay so they were just sitting their first two years at the law firm and were just basically the the ghost writer for their part i don't i don't put as much value in their ability to publish because Obviously, the partner just had a quota that they needed to fill, and then they brought on the junior lawyer and said, hey, you can write pretty well. Why don't we keep doing this? Oh, I would think the other way around. No. Because, I mean, judging, of course, primarily from the quality of the publications. But yes. then you have someone who's on the record as... Like a, a confidant of the partner. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. Maybe. Double-edged sword. But this is also, I mean, th that's uh, in terms of like strategy for our more junior members of the community and our listenership, it's a good idea to try to publish both with peers, but also with the more senior members. And if you do the latter, to the extent you have any leverage, which is typically not the case, yeah, you should really try to get your name on it one way or the other. Definitely. It's like becoming an arbitrator. You have to take certain steps. So the co-authorship with the partner is a, an easy first step to kind of you don't have to worry about how it's going to get published. Then his name or her name will be the reason you get it published anyway, so you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, exactly. It's very. I did it with my supervisor a few years ago. We wrote a book chapter, I guess, technically, on arbitration in the energy sector. And that was just in terms of writing and development. That was the biggest learning exercise I've ever had. Right. Because I did, in fact, write it, but I wrote, you know, X amount of drafts going back and forth. Yeah. And uh, the end product, of course, was uh, way different from the first thing I wrote because the input from uh, uh, my professor was so good and made me improve so yeah. much. That was just so useful to see, not just as I would imagine is the case when you're working on, on a case together that your, your stuff is just updated or changed and then you don't really see the end product. But this was more like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Right. Comments, 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 notes, notes, notes. Yeah, very, very helpful. But how do you get into a book chapter? How do you get into a book? You know people. Yeah. <laughs> it's the when they do those boring answer. Like looking for a bunch of contributors. Yeah. And this is where, like, the Kluver Law, uh, the arbitration blog comes in, for example. That uh -huh. I think this is, we talked about this when we talked about, like, online strategy. You, yeah. you, you want to be the person who comes up when someone Googles. Right. Stay of enforcement, annulment, exit. Because there's nothing. 
Yeah, yeah. Let exactly. it be known. <laughs> there was a, there's like articles published by the Exit Secretariat, but there's not, nothing else. I mean, so that is, of course, I, I have for my own students, and I'm not teaching right now, so if you're not my student, you can also approach me at the arbitration station at Gmail. But I have a long list that I keep updated with good topics oh. that I think, like, this is something that someone needs to write on. And I've been mentioning a few of them on this podcast. So you have to just identify something that is yes. just like a blank spot or something that, that people are supposedly interested in. And then once you do that, you need to get on the radar like, as the person who is on the record having written something on that. And then, because books are slower, so in two years' time, Cambridge University Press is going to do you know, a bigger thing on something more general, and they need a chapter on this specific right. subpoint. And then they're like, this person knows something. Exactly. So you need to be that person. And or just you know have a drink with the person who then ends up being the editor of the volume. <laughs> right. It's funny. There was this uh, anecdote that I heard that someone was talking to a partner who worked a lot in energy disputes. And they said, you know, they asked the question, how did you get involved in energy disputes? And this partner said, oh, I had no idea about energy disputes. I just started telling people that I was really good at energy disputes. And then I started getting energy disputes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a similar thing, right? It's like it's like basically an advertising. It'd be like, I kind of know something about this. Anybody want to contact me? Yeah, and free. then you have to just wing it when you get it. Well, because we all feel a little bit uncertain the first time we're addressing something that's new. Of course. The magic is just trying to do it anyway, because we are all faking it half the time. You just have to recognize right. that fact and, and work from that assumption. Yes, um, this is 2017, a wrap. A wrap. It's a wrap. <laughs> Cut. Uh, thanks, Joel. Thanks, Brian. Next time we record, I'll be in Cambridge. Yes. When is this? Have we made? We no. haven't even discussed. No. January, February sometime. Yes. That will start recording. Yeah. So we'll, re- we'll <laughs> release them in the spring. Spring-ish. Yeah. Spring never comes in Sweden, so I, <laughs> I don't know where that is. May, June. <laughs> right. Yeah, we need a date. Um, yeah, but we'll, we will be back. We've had such good good support and good reactions from everyone. It's just motivating us to keep doing this. Yeah. I've actually, I've got two people independent of each other asked us if we we're ask, thinking about doing merchandise. I haven't told you this. Really? Yeah. Should we do t-shirts or something? Yes. <laughs> With a pale yellow, that's our signature color. The who worst possible gonna, t-shirt. Who is going to wear that? <laughs> no, it needs to be white with this logo on it. But it, Or we could have like one of our taglines. Do we have a tagline? Happy fun time? Yeah. Crack a beer, it's happy fun time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's think about that. I Reporter has actually made t-shirts. I, I showed you this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the uh, Exit Additional Facility, which is often, uh, in short, Exit AF, <laughs> which is Exit, exit As Fuck. <laughs> That's a good one. Covering exit as fuck since 2006. (laughs) We need that. Okay, that uh, to be continued. And uh, happy New Year's to all of our listeners. Yes. Go on, prosper, stay motivated. Bye. Signing off.